The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Mark 16, 1 through 8. We'll be looking at those verses. Today we're going to look at the most celebrated moment in cosmic history. You know, every pastor... loves to, or at least should, get giddy with excitement, loves to teach the resurrection passage. And in a few moments, we're going to do that. But before we dive into that, we're going to look at something that is very interesting. It will require us to do some thinking, but it's important because This is a major part of us being students of Scripture. So as we finish the gospel, according to Mark, we come to an issue that Christians have been struggling with, and and quite honestly, you might too. This may be new to you, this this, uh, understanding of the Scripture. But they've been struggling with that since the second century. And that is the unsatisfying ending of Mark's gospel. You know, every once in a while, uh, as you're reading through the Gospels, if you have a good study Bible, you will encounter maybe missing verse numbers. Perhaps you've caught that before uh, in your reading of the Gospels. Or maybe uh, bracketed passages. Now, most of these verse numbers that are missing or bracketed passages are insignificant, but there are two larger portions of Scripture that are rather significant. One is contained in Mark 16, the very last part of the chapter, verses 9 through 20. And the other is in John chapter 7, verse 53, and it goes all the way through John chapter 8, verse 11. Now, a good study Bible will often have footnotes at the bottom of the page that explain why there is a verse that is missing from your translation, or or why a a passage is included but is bracketed, and and what that could possibly mean, or what might be the reason for that. And most of the time, the note will read something like this. This is not contained in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. Now, perhaps you caught it last week when I was teaching the previous chapter. Uh, I, I was going off of my notes, and of course I'd included the verse numbers on my notes, and then I went to refer back to verse 28 of chapter 15. But then when I went to read it from my Bible, verse 28 was missing from chapter 15. And immediately after the service, I had some people come up to me and be like, hey, what the heck? Where did verse 28 go? What's the deal with that? Now this stirs a little bit of controversy for a couple of reasons. You see, for disciples of Jesus, people who want to live under the rule of Jesus, the stakes are high. We base our lives on the words of Scripture. We take seriously the words of Jesus when he says that, uh, when he says in, in Matthew chapter 5, For I say unto you, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Or the words of John in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 to 19, that we are not to add to or take away from the words of Scripture. And our actions in life are based upon the words contained in this library of books that we call the Bible. So, what do we do when we come across some of the words that are disputed In Scripture. What do we do with those? In Mark's Gospel, today in our chapter, you'll note that this isn't just a single verse. It is from verse 9 through the remainder of the chapter, and contained in those verses are details about the resurrection of Jesus, the Great Commission, the Ascension, and a brief description of the spread of the Gospel. Now, don't those all seem like rather big issues? Don't those seem like important ideas? What are we to think about when, uh, about it when the notes from Bible translators are telling us that they aren't in the earliest manuscripts? Well, the question comes to us, how was it determined that these verses were not a part 
of the original writings. You know, evidence for including these verses is not small. When we look at the manuscripts of Mark's gospel that survive today, more than 99% of them contain Mark verses, Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. This includes not only 1,600 plus Greek manuscripts, but most manuscripts of early translations. Moreover, around 180 AD, we know that Irenaeus, an early church father, unambiguously quoted Mark 16, 19 as scripture in his writings against heresies. So this tells us that if there is an addition to the gospel, that this addition occurred very, very early in church history. It had to be before the time of 180 AD. Now, though more than 99% of the manuscripts available to us now contain Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, it may not have always been this way. And in the face of such large numbers, 99%, Why trust the 1%? Why trust such a small fraction? Why would it even be something of controversy? Well, this requires some thinking on our part. You see, we have accounts in the patristics. Patristics simply means the early church fathers' writings that detail the change in language and vocabulary at the end of Mark, and note that these verses were likely not original, but a later edition. Eusebius' work was repeated by Jerome and also Severus of Antioch, these early church fathers. And these comments span the, the first 500 years of church history. We also have two significant early copies of the Gospel of Mark. These are some of the earliest copies, and they do not include verses 9 through 20. These two important texts are the Codex Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but for people who study these manuscripts, those are important texts that they use in Bible translation. And in addition to that, Matthew and Luke both use Mark's gospel as likely source material. And yet, the end of their gospels vary widely in their accounts. They give different details, have different endings to the gospel. So even though they resource Mark as, a, as source material for the writing of their gospel, it seems as though they did not have the end, verses 9 through 20, to pull from for their gospel accounts. Now, to add to these details, many medieval manuscripts mark the longer ending with marginal notes to indicate that the verses were not present in other copies of Mark. And some of these human copiers, remember this is before the printing press, Some of these human copiers wrote notes along the side of it to let us know that the most widely circulated and reliable copies omitted these verses. So throughout the ages, translators have wrestled with whether or not to leave the verses or to retain them. And because they can't reach consensus, there's a lot of evidence for, a lot of evidence against they decided the best way to handle this is include verses 9 through 20, but put brackets around them to make sure that we note that there is controversy over those scriptures. Okay, so let's get practical then. What does this change for us when as Bible students we run across these moments in scripture? What are we to make of treasured doctrines like the clarity of scripture, infallibility, inerrancy, the authority of Scripture, or the inspiration of Scripture. Now, if you don't know what those words mean, don't worry, I'm going to walk you through it. First of all, to exclude those final verses does not affect the clarity of Scripture. Why? Because each of these truths that are contained in verses 9 through 20 
are also contained in other portions of scripture or gospel accounts and by other authors in the Bible. Whether they appear in the original manuscripts of Mark or not is inconsequential. It's inconsequential to the Bible because all of these details are included throughout the rest of the New Testament. We gain or lose no significant information or matter of Christian doctrine by their presence or by their absence. And so the message of Scripture remains clear to us. It also doesn't affect infallibility. Why? Because infallibility is connected to, uh, to the Scriptures not saying anything false or untrue. Copies of infallible Scripture were made were made by fallible hands. But the truth of Scripture is not changed. If anything, adding verses 9 through 20 only confirms what is taught in other places in Scripture. It also doesn't affect inerrancy. Why? Because each of the truths contained in the final passage of Mark or in other textual variations are otherwise stated plainly in other portions of Scripture. So the Bible's message remains the same. We're still pointed to the same truths about Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, the Great Commission, the spread of the gospel. And now even those that stake their claim on the, 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 the famous snake handling part at the end in, in verses 9 through 20, that you'll take up serpents, you know, in, in, in going out and sharing the gospel, they could still make a case from that from the book of Acts, though I think that they probably shouldn't. The point being, the gospel of Mark will not lead you into errors in thinking about Jesus or the gospel. It's going to lead you to the right gospel. It also doesn't affect inspiration. Why? Because inspiration teaches that God used the human authors of Scripture to pen what he wanted penned in the original manuscripts. The issue at hand here is not that there is an error in the original manuscripts. Rather, it is the transmission or the handing off or passing on of those Scriptures throughout history. God used Mark to write an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the copies made of those words can vary based on translator or manuscript, but the inspiration of Mark's words are unaffected. And lastly, it does not affect the authority of Scripture. Why? Because God's word is still the highest court of authority for faith and practice for the people of God. His authority is not undermined through variant readings that contain the same truths that are also stated in other places in Scripture. So here's an analogy that I like to use when when thinking this through. It's helpful for me in uh, in thinking about this issue. Uh, Imagine the difference between taking a picture with an iPhone from 2010 and taking the same picture with the latest iPhone. You see, here's the issue. You may lose some of the pixels or some of the clarity, but overall, the picture is still clear. The picture remains the same. The subject of the picture increases in clarity, but the picture itself is not lost. The resolution is increased with the newer phone, but the picture is the same. So here's an example. Here's, here's a picture of a couple of high mountain lakes. The, the picture on the left there was taken in 2010. That's Devil's Punch Bowl on the left. I took that with an iPod touch that had a little tiny peephole camera on it. And then this picture I took yesterday of Porcupine Lake on the right-hand side. Can you tell that it's a lake? Can you tell that it's a mountainside and that there's trees and that there's water? Absolutely. On the right side, the picture is a picture of a lake with trees and a mountainside and rocks. It's a beautiful picture. But the picture, you see, is still the same picture. It's a picture of a lake with trees and rocks. We do not lose the subject matter whether the remaining verses of verses 9 through 20 
stay in the Bible or make an exit from the Bible because they're not in the earliest manuscripts. So, for those of you that are in on our email list, if this is a, st- a subject of study that you would like to continue to try and understand, we're sending out some resources this week that will help you in thinking through this issue. Uh, and if you're not on the email list, we're also going to share them via our social media this week. And so if this is something of interest, you're like, how do I know that I can trust the Bible? And how does this actually work out? We don't have the time because we would lose the point of looking at the resurrection to go much further into detail than this. But there is an opportunity for you to continue to grow and sharpen your skills. You see, if we took Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 out of every Bible and wiped their memory from every living person, the message of Scripture would be unaffected. The picture remains the same. And so for the remainder of our time today, we will focus our attention on seeing the message of Jesus that we believe that Mark intended for his audience to see. We will give our attention to verses 1 through 8 as the likely original ending to the Gospel of Mark and then ask the question, why has he ended it so abruptly? Our text today divides nicely into three movements. For those of you who are outline people and would like to take notes, verses 1 through 3, sorrowful expectation. Sorrowful expectation. Verses 4 to 6, mysterious explanation. Mysterious explanation. And verses 7 through 8, a fearful invitation. A fearful invitation. Now remember where we are in the recorded history of Jesus at this moment. He's just been nailed unjustly to a Roman cross. While suffering, the sun was darkened, there was an earthquake, and the veil inside of the temple that separated the holy place from the holiest of holies was torn in two by God the Father. After crying out, the first line of Psalm 22, and then commending himself to God the Father, Jesus died abruptly. A Gentile Roman soldier standing near the cross responded to this moment after the earthquake and after the darkness and after seeing the way that Jesus died, he responded by saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus received permission to take the body of Jesus. They knew that Jesus' body would likely be tossed in an unmarked grave if they didn't intervene. And at great risk to their own reputation, they made the choice to care for the body of Jesus in burial. Because it was almost sundown and the Sabbath would prevent them from doing work, they had to act quickly. So, after prying the lifeless body of Jesus from the cross, they quickly washed it with water. They wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, along with an extravagant amount of of burial spices, 75 Roman pounds. This was all to show reverence for him. Then they transported the wrapped body of Jesus to Joseph's own family tomb and laid it to rest there. A giant stone was rolled over the entrance of the tomb. The female disciples who had been following Jesus in his journey to the cross, witnessing his death, they also accompanied in the burial of Jesus. They observed where his body was laid. And as the Sabbath passes now, These ladies are up early in the morning to contribute the spices that they have prepared in showing reverence for the dead. And we pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 16. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, 
they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was, it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples that, that Peter and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And this is the closing of the Gospel of Mark. In verses 1 through 3, we see a sorrowful expectation. Notice the sorrowful expectation of these women. They're not expecting the events that follow. You see, in their minds, Jesus is dead, and that's the end of the story. They're like so many before and after them in the experience of death. It's a, it's a shock to their system. The only thing that seems right is to treat the body of their loved one with the reverence that reflects the value of that person in their life. And they have lived these last days in heaviness, in agony of soul, simply trying to wrap their minds around the reality that Jesus is gone. And for them, it, it, it's not one single sorrow, it's a multifaceted sorrow. It is a sorrow, first of all, over the death of their friend. You see, Jesus had loved these women as his friends. Mary Magdalene, you'll remember, had personally been freed from demonic oppression by Jesus. They had laughed together in their many visits. They had shared tears as they listened to his teachings. Were those incredible moments where the women who were witnesses to the ministry of Jesus saw him open the eyes of the blind, heal the lame, cleanse the lepers, and free those that are demonized. They ate with Jesus. They shared meals with him, sat around hung out with him around a table. And they had believed in his teachings. And for the last few days, they had waited agonizing and sorrowful hours for the freedom to come and pay their respects to their crucified friend. And time, I would imagine, had passed slowly. They've been waiting for the chance to show him the reverence that he was due. The impulse for them to come early in the morning as the sun is just rising. The impulse for them to get up that early and head out to the tomb, to the graveside of their friend, came from a place of love. Deep affection for a man that they knew and loved and spent time with. Not only that, but it, it was a sorrow over the death of their hopeful expectation. Not only the death of their friend, but a sorrow over the death of their hopeful expectation. You see, with him, with Jesus, have perished all the hopes of the messianic kingdom that they dreamed could be a reality. In his death, all the good that they envisioned God doing in Israel died with him. They're coming now with the understanding that if there is no Jesus, then there is no enduring kingdom of God to be a part of. Life for them will return to normal and their experiences will, with Christ will be relived in memories. Memories of a time when, when God did amazing things. 
It will be a reference point in their human experience, a a joyful season that they remember from a time long ago, accentuated by a sorrowful exclamation point. You see, as these women approached, they were what Ray Steadman, the great preacher, called Saturday's children. I love what Stedman said about this mindset, about Saturday's children. Let me read this quote to you. He said, someone has called our present generation Saturday's children, and it's an apt term. Our great American cities are, for the most part, teeming with pools, or teeming with pools of human misery where people live out their days in a kind of ritual dance toward death with hope or illusion. In the midst of an increasingly godless world, despair grips people's hearts everywhere. Hopelessness and meaninglessness come crushing in on us from every side. You see, Without the hope of the resurrection, we all are Saturday's children. We all are living with this idea that at the end, at at death, all the experiences of life, all the wisdom that we've gained, all the work that we have done dies with us, and there is nothing else. But with the hope of the resurrection, we are not Saturday's children. We're Sunday's children. Well, as they made their way to the tomb, day is breaking. They began thinking about the practical things that needed to be done in order to care for the body of their friend. And they begin discussing this with one another. They ask, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They wondered and discussed as they made their way to the grave. And notice this, in their sorrowful expectation, there isn't the slightest idea that Jesus might not be there. They're not expecting what comes next. And what comes next is a mysterious explanation. Verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So there comes this moment where where the women are walking on the trail to the tomb of Jesus, where, where they finally have perspective. They can see the entrance of the tomb. And panic, no doubt, filled their hearts as they tried to understand why the stone was rolled away already. Have you ever had a a panicked moment where something's not right? And your brain is sort of frantically searching for an understanding. It's surveying all the details and you're, you're looking at everything, trying to make sense of the picture that is before you. That's the moment that these women are walking through. They're trying to make sense of it. Their hearts are beating heavy. Their thoughts are racing. But did, did, did someone come and, uh, come and take him? And if so, who, who might that be? Is it the Romans? Maybe, maybe it was the enemies of Jesus. How are we going to show our love for him now? What will we do? How will we find him? The thoughts are ra- racing in their minds. Fortunately for them, God sent a heavenly messenger to give direction in the face of such shock. Verse 5 tells us, In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Now imagine this for just a moment. Imagine it is early. The light is just coming up. It's kind of that eerie time of morning where darkness and light are blending together in the sky. And so you make your way to the graveside of your friend. 
only to find that the grave has been mysteriously opened. Now, it's just barely getting light, and your eyes are adjusting to the light. Your, your heart is panicked. You're trying to figure out what has happened. And upon stepping into the tomb to try and figure out what is going on and wondering if your friend's body is still there, the one thing you expect to see or hope to see is the wrapped body of your friend lying in the tomb. Remember, your chief concern is the care of his lifeless body and what might have happened to it. But then upon entering, there's not a dead person, but there's a living person on the right side, in the corner, in glowing white apparel. And then he speaks. Don't be alarmed. (laughs) Too late, right? I'm already completely freaked out by this moment. Too late. Don't be alarmed, he says. And then comes this incredible announcement. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Now listen to this. These words probably hit them like a two-by-four, right between the eyes. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Imagine. Imagine the weight of that moment. Think about what your mind would be doing, trying to figure out how this is possible. Imagine the mixture of fear and hope and unbelief that is just swirling around in the hearts and minds of these women. And then the angel continues to speak with a fearful invitation, verses 7 through 8. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. After making the announcement that Jesus has risen from the dead, the angel gives these women a directive, a, a, a task. But go tell the disciples. The first thing that these women are to do is to share the good news. Now this is an important detail for us to consider. In the times in which this moment took place, a woman's testimony wasn't even considered legal in a court of law. Yet God makes them the first heralds of the good news, of the resurrection. And by this, God is going beyond the cultural norms of the time to establish the value of women in his kingdom. The value of their word. The value of their testimony. It is they who are the bearers of the gospel message first. It's an incredible moment. Also, I I want you to take note of what the angel does in singling out Peter. He says, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You know how heartbroken Peter must be feeling at this moment, knowing that he denied, knowing that he betrayed his friendship with Jesus and that Jesus had predicted it. Jesus told him that this would happen. And yet at this lowest moment comes a personal message through these women. Make sure Peter knows. Make sure Peter knows that he and I have an appointment with each other. I'm not done with Peter. The best is yet to come. I have big plans for the guy who is, who's feeling so down and out right now. I haven't taken away the keys of the kingdom. Still have a plan to use Peter. He's, he's going to be the one, Peter, the one who denied me, the, the friend who betrayed me. He's going to be the one who opens the gates of the kingdom to the Jewish people in Acts 2. And then I'm, I'm going to use him again to open the gates of the kingdom to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Let Peter know that the hope of the resurrection is for him too. 
the angel reminds these women that Jesus had already said that he had planned to meet the disciples in Galilee. You know where Jesus had said that? He said that in Mark chapter 14, verse 28. He said it right in the exact same passage where he had told Peter that he would deny Jesus. It's an incredible moment. Oh, what grace is displayed in the resurrection. Even for those of us just like, who are just like Peter, who are here this morning with a great burden from our own failing, Jesus is still coming for us. Our failings do not deter the love of Jesus for his disciples. You know, it would take some time for the women mentioned here and the disciples who would receive their message to work out the incredible implications of the resurrection. But eventually, they, they would see what it meant that Jesus was raised from the dead. Matter of fact, they wrote about it in the remainder of the New Testament. Here's some of the things that they wrote. I just, I just want you to see, like, what did the resurrection mean to the people in whose generation it actually occurred? What did it mean to them? Well, we have their words. We have their writings. First of all, it meant that believers are justified before God. Paul would write in Romans chapter 4, verses 22 to 25. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and who was raised for our justification. So Paul would write, Jesus was raised for our justification. Here's, here's the big idea there. We are at odds in our sinful nature with God and the relationship is severed and broken. But Jesus died taking the punishment on our behalf and was raised as a testimony that indeed our sins had been forgiven by God and that we were now justified in his sight. This is why Paul would also write in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ or those that have died have all perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's what Paul is saying. The resurrection proves that our sins are forgiven. It, it tells us that, that God found no fault in his son Jesus. That he was not worthy of the death that he suffered. That he suffered that death on behalf of his kingdom people, of us, of sinners. The fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, the apostles said very early on in history, means that we are forgiven, we are justified, we are right with God because of Christ. It means also that Jesus defeated death. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching, he says this in verses 23 to 24, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Remember, he's talking to the people in Jerusalem who were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
This is why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 to 57. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Here's the idea. They had already seen in the life of Jesus him defeat everything. He walloped Satan in the desert in the temptation. And again and again, he put to, uh, put to flight the demons who would possess people. He opened up the eyes of the blind and healed sickness and caused the lame to walk. He even raised the dead. And the question is, okay, but we, we see that you've, you, you've beaten back sort of the fallen uh, consequences of sin in the world. We see that you, you have power and authority over nature. You walk on the waves. You calm the storms with the word. We see that you have authority to cast out demons. We've seen all of that, but what about death? What about death? <laughs> Jesus' answer, the resurrection. I have authority over death as well. And this is what that means. Not only did Jesus defeat death for himself, but we will be raised to everlasting life because of our union with Christ. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believers, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So because of our union with Christ, because of our being united with Christ, we also will be raised from the dead bodily to be with Christ Forever and ever. This is why Paul would write to the Romans in chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He's implying that the same destiny awaits you and I. That we're united with him in his death, paying for sin, and we're united with him in his resurrection, being guaranteed a resurrected life forever and ever with God. But not only does it, the resurrection mean that to these early followers of Jesus, it also meant that the scriptures themselves had been validated by God, both in picture and in prophecy. In picture, Jesus is the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the salvation boat in which all who believe are spared the judgment of God. In Genesis chapter 8. Jesus is the one who will bring all the rebellious splintered nations from the Tower of Babel back under the rule of God. He will unite the nations of the world under his kingdom and under his authority. Genesis chapter 11. Jesus is the sacrifice slain in the place of humanity in the same way that the ram was slain in the place of Isaac. Genesis chapter 22. Jesus is the greater than Moses who delivers his people from slavery to sin and death. Exodus 1 through 12. Jesus is the Passover lamb who spares God's people from judgment. Exodus 12. Jesus is the greater than Joshua who leads God's people into all that God promised. Joshua 1. Jesus is the greater than David, the champion of his people who slays the giants of sin, Satan, and death. 1 Samuel 17. In picture after picture after picture throughout the entirety of Scripture, God now pulls all of the threads of the Bible together into this moment. He says, it's all been talking about my son. It's all been talking about this moment. It's all been talking about him. But not just in picture. Also in specific prophecy. Jesus is the suffering servant whose hands and feet were pierced, who was 
pierced for our transgressions, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Jesus is the hope of all those who suffer as Job did. When Job penned these words in verse, in Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. There's his hope. What was Job's hope? Hope in the resurrection of the dead. He was looking forward to a time when the work of Christ would be finished and he would be raised from the dead to see his Savior face to face in his flesh, bodily raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who will establish the new covenant with the people of God from Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel 36. Jesus is the son of man that Daniel the prophet saw. In Daniel chapter 7, he wrote these words. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given the glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations And languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is the one that Daniel saw. It's incredible. Jesus is the humble king who comes riding in on a donkey, offering salvation and a kingdom of refuge. To all who believe, Zechariah 9.9. You see, because Jesus was raised from the dead, the scriptures are validated as being from God. This is why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. He would say to the Corinthian church, For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the people of God, the disciples, looked back throughout the entirety of Scripture, every scrap of Scripture that they could see and think about and recognize, and they go, oh my goodness. God was pointing to this moment, the moment of redemption and the raising of His Son. It was all written in the Scriptures for us. And so, in conclusion... Finally, we come to the final verse penned by Mark in his gospel in verse 8. And they went out and fled the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now back to our original question. Why did it end so abruptly? You know, it's easy to see why some might be left feeling like the gospel was unfinished. Like maybe he just, he put his pen down, he didn't get back to it, the manuscript got passed around. Maybe that's what happened. Or, 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 or maybe, you know, people just need a little bit more. Like we don't want to leave it on this moment where they, they, they are given this commission by the angel and then they, they just go out and they, it seems like they're afraid and they're, they're not talking about anything. What, what's going on? You see why it might be tempting to add to what Mark had written because the ending leaves us longing. We're used to good stories resolving on a high note. We have an innate longing to see that resolution. However, I think that this is precisely the point. You see, the reader is left to ask the question, well, what happened next? How does the story end? It seems that rather than Mark's gospel being unfinished, the end of his gospel 
is just the beginning. If you think about it, Hollywood has hacked this sort of default desire for resolution in us as well. Don't believe me? Okay. How many of you would like to come over to my house and watch an eight-hour movie with me? Sound fun? No takers? No, that sounds like miserable, doesn't it? Okay. How many of you would like to watch an eight-hour-long movie broken up into one-hour episodes that always end on a cliffhanger? Now all of a sudden we're like, oh, I've already done that. I've already watched eight-hour movies before. Didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but now it makes sense. You see, we're all in. Why? Because that cliffhanger ending leaves us longing for what comes next. What happens after that? It invites us into the story. It connects desire with the storyline so that we begin to think about, like, it can't end like that. This is not right. I need resolution. And this is precisely what I believe Mark is doing here. The cliffhanger ending is meant to draw out our intrigue. It is meant to be a literary hook. You see, the people who first receives Mark's gospel, the gospel that he penned here, they knew that the women must have obeyed. The very reason that they are reading the gospel in the first place is that these women must have obeyed. In fact, the readers have become a part of the story. The story is still unfolding as they receive the message of the gospel and they decide whether or not they will share it with others. Mark's writing here is brilliant. We're in the exact same position as the women. We've been entrusted with the greatest news that has ever been told and then commanded to share it. And when we get to the end of the gospel and we ask the question, well, what, what did they do? We are simultaneously asking, what will we do when we receive the same good news? You see, every generation of gospel recipients is given the same task to take what we have been given and to share it. Do you, do you remember all the way back in September how the gospel of Mark opened? It's right there, Mark's intent. It's right there in the very first verse of the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says, this whole account of Jesus' life, this is just the beginning of what God is doing through the gospel. This is just how it started. This is just the beginning of what God is doing. God is continuing to do through all those who hear the beginning and begin to live in light of the beginning. And then he goes on to describe this guy, John the Baptist, as fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. It opens by saying this is just the beginning of the gospel. In other words, in the mind of Mark, the gospel is still unfolding as we encounter the resurrected Christ. As we understand his life and death and resurrection and ascension, what it means, the gospel is still unfolding. It's still radiating like ripples in a pond into the universe. But then Mark opens with a herald, John the Baptist, proclaiming that the king has come, that the kingdom is here. And now he closes with women that are just like you and I being given the same job description as John the Baptist, to be heralds of the gospel. We are the story continued. We're the ones who now take what is written about Jesus, what we've discovered about his kingdom, what we've discovered about the heart of God, what we've discovered about the meaning of his death and the meaning of his resurrection. We take that now and we share that with the world around us. Okay, let's get practical then. 
How do we share the hope of the resurrection? We share it by talking about what the risen Christ has done. We share out of our own experience with Jesus. There's three things I want you to take note of. We share through the confession of our lives, through the profession of our words, and through the witness of our testimony. First of all, the confession of our lives. This is what it means. With the backdrop of our lifestyle demonstrating that the risen Christ is real, we live as active participants in the kingdom of God under the reign of King Jesus. We're obeying him and his words by the power of the Holy Spirit so that our words, when they come out of our mouths, are consistent with the way that we live. Our confession matches the way that we live. So one of the ways that we share Christ with the world is we live under the reign and rule of Jesus and people see what it looks like for those who live under the rule of Christ. We share it through the confession of our lives. We share it through the profession of our words. Listen, only exampling the gospel is insufficient. For how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless we speak? We have to tell the world around us about Jesus. We have to tell them about the kingdom that he is building. And lastly, we share through the witness of our testimony, sharing authentically out of our own experience of how Jesus has changed us. It's not sales. We're not peddlers. It's not even primarily done sharing the gospel. It's not primarily done through street evangelism or through evangelistic crusades. No, it's done person to person. We are those who have encountered the life-changing reality of the resurrected Jesus, and we want to share it with others. It is shared out of who you are, the unique way that you are put together by God. It takes your giftings and your personality and your unique lens, and, and, and through that unique lens, God articulates the gospel through you, through the way that you live, through the way that you speak in very natural ways, building relationship upon relationship and sharing the gospel in life together. He might inspire you to write a movie script or create art or write a book. That may be the way that he uses you. Or maybe you're not that creative person. Maybe you're just, you just are a people person. You love being around people. And so he may use you to, to bring people over for a barbecue or, or greet your neighbor and, 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 and to get to know them and befriend them. And over a, a period of time, share with them out of what Christ has done in your life so that they might understand that what the hope of the resurrection really means, how it's really affected you, how it's really changed you. It might be through your hobbies. It might be through skills that you have and the way that you employ them. It might be through a number of ways in which you care for the poor and the downtrodden in the world. But it will always be the combination of your character and your words being spoken about Jesus. I'll give you a great example. Last week, I'm on my exercise bike. I've got one of those iFit apps. And, I, you know, on the iFit app, you can, like, you're following somebody who's on a bike in Italy, right? So I'm, like, pedaling away in my garage. I'm following this person. I've been following this trainer for, like, the last 10 uh, episodes, right? Go, biking my way through Italy. Sounds like a lot of fun. It actually is kind of fun. And so Jenny, my, my trainer, begins sharing about the crisis that brought her to faith in Jesus as we're pedaling away through you know, the Tuscan countryside. She's just sharing. She's like, for those of you who know me, you know that I'm a person of faith. She's sharing out of her experience, her encounter with the risen Christ, sharing the gospel. It's not sales. It's sharing out of who you are. We're meeting strangers who we invite to become neighbors, who become friends, and through the sharing of the message of Mark and Matthew, Luke, and John, We tell people about the risen Christ and what he's done. We hope that those strangers will become neighbors and those neighbors will become friends and that those friends will eventually make their way to become a part of the family of God.
So when we close the book of Mark, our minds should be spinning. Just like the minds of these women. We should be asking, what, 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 what do I do with this incredible news? We're left seeing that the resurrected Christ is still doing in us what he has done to so many in the, in the gospel of Mark. He's still opening our blind eyes. He's still cleansing our leprosy of sin. He's still raising the dead to life. In Mark's gospel, the people who should understand and see Jesus for who he is, don't. The Pharisees, the disciples oftentimes are blind to it. And the people who shouldn't see it do. They get it. Who is Jesus? What has he done in your life? These are the big questions. The story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and his ascension, it's just the beginning of the gospel. The end is just the beginning. That story is still being written through the living epistles that are sitting here in the sanctuary. This hot, smoky July afternoon. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this encouragement that we receive from you. God, make us faithful witnesses who receive the truth of the resurrection for ourselves, live in light of your kingdom, and share it with anybody who will listen. May your name and your salvation, your works be on our lips. And may your kingdom come here in Medford, Oregon. May your will be done here in Medford, Oregon even as it is being done right this moment in heaven. In the name and for the glory of Jesus, amen.